Father, we're amazed at you. You're the designer of our lives. You formed us in our mother's wombs. You have a plan for our lives before we were ever born. And we thank you that you're not only our maker, but our sustainer. And today we honor and we recognize you as the giver of life. You've given us this precious gift. And we thank you for your intentions for our lives, that they're always good. And yet today we would speak on behalf of those who have no voice. As you've asked the followers of Christ everywhere to speak out for those who cannot speak for themselves. You've told us true and pure and undefiled faith or religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. You've told us to speak on behalf of the deaf and the blind, the prisoner, and the one who is unable to speak for themselves. Make us those who care and show compassion the way that you do. And Father, today too, I would just pray that for each one who's here, and obviously there are someone here who may have aborted a baby in time past. And we thank you that you're the same merciful God who offers us forgiveness and restoration. And I would pray for anyone who carries guilt today because of that, that they would come to the Savior and to the cross and understand there's room there for them. And I pray that not only would you grant mercy and restoration, but I pray that you would also utilize their lives to be a spokesman for those who have no voice. And so this day we give it to you. We thank you for the opportunities we have. We thank you for our children. We thank you for our children's ministry and those who work with them. Father, I would pray also for next week as we have a parents' luncheon for our children's ministry, that you would touch our hearts and minds to not only take advantage of that, but use it to benefit the work that you've begun here in children's ministry. And today we ask that we would hear you as you speak to us. We commit all these things to you in Christ's name and all God's family said. Amen. And our children are dismissed to their classes. And as they go, I would like to invite Doug and uh, John, if you guys would join me up here. <laughs> you just heard about Men's Summit, and we'd like to let you uh, meet two living people who attend Men's Summit. And some of you know Doug Flagg and John Spock. And uh, guys, we've been having a special time in there. This is the second semester for both of us. But uh, Doug, why don't you share a minute just some of the pluses that have been for you uh, for being part of Men's Summit. Yeah, I think uh, one of the great things about it is a, a chance to rub shoulders with other men. You know, we meet at 6 in the morning on Friday mornings, and, and it's early. It's hard to get up. Uh, but I'm telling you, I'm not overwhelmed by the day at the end of the day, and I'm not overwhelmed in the midst of the day's struggles. And it's a chance to really go ahead and say, um, God, what do you want to do in my life here? And really be transparent and share with other guys what's going on. And in that, and Roland's going to talk about it today, but a little bit is... Um, the lesson we're going through is kind of just getting back to basics, right? Here's how we dribble the ball. Here's how we um, do the basics. Wait, that's mine. Yeah, yeah, you're giving that away. Sorry. So anyways, that, it's a little bit about coming up, but uh, um, 
but it's back to basics for me, and it's, it's really wonderful kind of getting to the heart of the matter of what is our mission, uh, what is the mission Jesus gave us here on, on earth. And John, you were sharing with me uh, Friday morning that uh, this particular session we're in where it talks about that the number one priority of, for God's men and also for the church is to make disciples and how that impacting you and your work. Yeah, this, um, this men's summit this time on Friday mornings with other men, um, for me it's a, it's a chance to kind of get out of the stands and maybe on the sideline and, and even think about getting off the sideline into the game. And uh, as I... I own my own business, and I've got employees, and I've got clients, and um, and it's clear to me that God has given me gifts and talents, and um, and, I, and I'm at a point in my life where I am seeking a, a closer relationship with God, and I'm seeking to hear from God, and uh, I'd like to say I do hear from God every morning when I spend 15, 30 minutes in Scripture, but it really, in all honesty, isn't it enough time, and it's not enough quiet time to hear from God, so... Um, preparing for the Friday morning men's summit is an opportunity to have some of that time with with Christ. It is a chance to take time out of the week and commit it to hearing from God and um, and seeing how it is He's going to take um, the gifts and talents He's given me and and use them for His purpose, for kingdom purposes. Which um, you know is my desire of my heart. I don't want to get ten more years down the road and. Um, confront this. I want to know now, and I want to be effective for God. So that's what summit's hopefully doing for me. Thanks, John. And Doug, one more thing. Uh, Friday night, there was some activity going on here. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about that Friday morning at Men's Summit. Why don't you share with the folks what Yeah, happened? so maybe, Dave, you could show a picture. So there's a battle raging. Uh, not just a spiritual battle, but a physical battle. That's, a, that's me there in the sweatshirt. I don't have all the gear like my buddy Ian there. Um, he's a 20-something, and uh, that was one of our last stands at the bell tower, just right out here. But we play airsoft, and uh, what it is, you've maybe seen these little white BBs around the uh, church campus. Those aren't fertilizers, so if the kids pick them up, it's okay. So uh, um, anyways, what we do is we run around and kind of play war, pretty much what it is. But we get kids from age 10 all the way up to um, 20-somethings, and then a lot of fathers and sons that come out and play. How many and, were here Friday night? This Friday night, we had 100 and just over 150 people here at the church playing. So we, we usually meet in the youth room. We overflowed in the multipurpose room. We were out of space. So um, what's really neat is about 70% of these people are not believers at all, have no, uh, no exposure to the gospel until they come here. Because what we do is we take a break during the day, feed them with pizza and soda, make them sit down, and we share the gospel. We share our testimony with them, and it's opening doors to conversation. Um, to uh, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so we're so excited about that. We started out with 12 a year and a half ago. We're up to 150 plus. Our roster is almost 300 people now if everybody showed up at one time. So we're really excited about what he's doing there. I could use some help. So I need help with some cleanup. I need help with some administration. So if you want to get involved, doesn't mean you have to come out and play and shoot or anything. But uh, if you want to come out and help, I'd love to talk to you about uh, helping out with it so that uh, those of us who are developing a relationship with these guys have a chance to, to deepen that and uh, lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Guys, thanks a bunch. Let's give them a hand this morning. And um, we're having a great time in Men's Summit as uh, guys get together and have a special time with each other. We talk about important things and priorities, and we're all about right now that God's left us here 
to make an impact in our community. And uh, watching these guys, and also the, we have a bunch of dads that come to Airsoft. And they're just sitting there waiting, and guys are, some of the men, some of the guys are going to come by and, and just hang around with them, build some relationships, and let's pray that God uses that. So these are some special opportunities. And also, if you're not part of Men's Summit, you want to think about after the service, Bill Barry will be out, the little table out there. There's a book. Um, this is just the third week coming up. It's a great time and I encourage you to be there. Yesterday, my wife and I were in Solvang, and we were doing a conference for a 30-something church up there. And um, um, also, I wanted to mention before I get into that, next Sunday, parents, there's a luncheon for you here, for those who are in the children's ministry. And uh, I want you to take advantage of that, and uh, there's a special time, and Carolyn and her staff will have, have uh, just some, some things to help parents uh, raise their kids, so I want, you want to take advantage of that. Is Nate Burrs here? Well, there's Nate. And uh, um, your wife is Abby. You guys stand up. And uh, Nate is also an Abby. Uh, he's part of Men's Summit. He's been coming. And uh, they're missionaries uh, on their way to Indonesia later in the fall. And John, uh, Paul wanted me to say hi. So uh, hi to you guys. We're glad you're here this morning. Yeah, let's thank you. <clears throat> Did you know that you and I have a story to tell? Maybe I should say it this way. Actually, God has a story to tell. And he's inviting you and I to be part of his story. Uh, when you talk to 30-somethings, and um, my wife and I have about uh, 14 of them. Actually, uh, four of them just graduated into their 40s. And uh, I coach some churches of 30-somethings and and one of the things that is important to them is understanding where they fit into the story. What does that mean in their life? Where is, what is God's story? And uh, I was talking to one of them this week, and they reminded me, Donald Miller. Has anybody here read Blue Like Jazz? Or, uh, okay, so many of you know the books that Donald Miller writes. The most recent one he wrote is something like A, a, a Thousand Years and a Million Miles from Home, whatever it is. But it's the whole idea of the story that 30-somethings want to be part of is knowing that it's a good story. And secondly, there's significance in being part of that. But you know, that's true of all of us. <laughs> we all want to know that the part of the story that's being written in our life or ours being written into God is a good story and that there is some significance to that kind of life. And uh, hopefully this morning we're going to take a look at that. And if I were to say today, how does your story read? What is it reading right now? Is it an adventure? Is it a drama? And where is it headed? Is it headed toward a good ending? I didn't say uh, it doesn't have challenges, didn't have problems. Or are we headed in the wrong direction? In this series that we are in called New Beginnings, it means we're taking a look, a fresh start, at what makes a difference in this world and in our lives and how does God want to work in our lives. It means renewing priorities that lead to a winning lifestyle that God can use. You know, the winningest coach in NCAA basketball history, uh, just right down the road here in Westlake, John Wooden won 10 national titles. And what's interesting, I went to seminary with a guy who had played uh, on one of the UCLA teams, the first national championship team, Doug McIntosh. And Doug was saying that at the beginning of every year, uh, John Woodenwood came out, all of his returning guys. In fact, this went all the way through when he had two and three-year returning All-Americans. He'd say, men, this is a basketball. Here's how we dribble it at UCLA. This is a chess pass. Here's how we throw it, throw like this, thumbs out and uh, follow through. Here's how we do a bounce pass. Here's how we shoot a layup here at UCLA. 
with guys who would be, you know them as all pros later on, all Americans. And then he would even sit down and say, here's how we put on our socks at UCLA to play basketball. And here's how we tie the shoe. Now, you might think that's just a little bit out there, but the results speak for themselves. That is, four, I mean, ten national championships because there was a place to go back and look at the foundation, look at the fundamentals, and do it the right way. And hopefully in this series, New Beginnings, we're doing some of that. We're looking at what matters. You know, my role here at ABF is to help prepare this church, among other things, for a new pastor. We're praying about that. Many of you have been. We encourage you to do that. And so as we start this year, we're trying to say, what kind of foundation can we lay so that when God brings the person in that he has, we are already heading in the right direction. And praise God because you've been praying and much of that is happening right now. That's another reason it's exciting to see what's happening in Men's Summit. And today we're going to take a look, hopefully ask a question that looks for guidance. And um, um, in fact, the title, if you look in your outline, is Real Men and Women Ask for Directions. Now, question. How many here have asked directions from somebody over, let's say, the last month? Men or women. If you've asked directions, whether you're in a store, you didn't know where to go, you're lost. Uh, can I see your hands? Okay, put them up. First of all, let's just have the ladies put up their hands first. Okay, ladies, put them just higher so I can see. I know many of you are Presbyterians. You can't get them up. Okay, there you go. Uh, now, how many men have asked for some kind of directions in the last month? Well, that's pretty good, guys. We're getting better, aren't we? You know, but it wasn't the first time you got lost, right? It was, you, know, you have to figure it out yourself a little bit. And so today we're going to take a look at a 20-something who models asking for directions, interestingly enough. And the life of this 20-something started, you know him, as a shepherd boy who was also an incredible musician who became a warrior. In fact, not only was he a warrior, but he took on and he defeated the bears, the lions, and the giants in the same season. <laughs> he took them out. And uh, anybody know the scores yet? Oh, it's until later on, isn't it? That's, that's, I, won't, I shouldn't go there. But he became also the most remarkable king in the history of Israel as a nation. So much so that when the Messiah came, he was called the son of David. This messianic appearance that came through David. Now, we're going to take a look at four cameos of David's life this morning that is going to illustrate why real men and women ask for directions. So if you turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel... Chapter 23, we're going to flip a little bit. If you're not sure where 1 Samuel is, it's right next to 2 Samuel. If that doesn't help, go to the middle of your Bible and hang left. And go back a little bit and you'll find it. 1 Samuel chapter 23. And we're going to look at some scenarios from David's life. Answering the questions, does asking directions make any difference anyhow? And we're going to see there's a common theme in all four of these cameo appearances of David. And what was, what was similar in these themes is that in every one, David's life was in a precarious position. He was facing danger. And by the way, when we're facing danger or stress, or we begin to discover who we really are under pressure. You've heard people say, well, you know, situations make or break someone. Actually, they really don't. They simply reveal what's on the inside of us. No circumstance can make you bitter or better. It's our choice how we handle those. And we're going to see in David's life, 
he made some great choices. We know that in his life he also made some not so great choices. But you see, to have direction from God doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It does mean we have to be listening to what he has to say to us. And so what pressure and what problem and pain does is it tends to reveal our tendencies. Where do we turn for wisdom and strength and provision and courage? And in all four of these situations, we're going to see there is some degree in David's life of desperation. And that has a tendency to help us find out um, where we are, where we're headed. Now, David is in his early years being chased by the man he'll replace as king. Saul was the king when David was anointed because God had rejected Saul. And we're going to see this marked contrast if we had time to really go into it. But I want to encourage you to go read First and Second Samuel. First of all, it reads like any incredible biography. David's life is that's what it is. First and Second Samuel is his life, not to mention he's in Kings and Chronicles. But the stories will just keep you going as you watch God work in this 20-something's life. We forget how young he was when almost all of, the, of this is recorded about his life. And so David's on the run because the king who is now enthroned is trying to kill him. And David, since he's been anointed as king, has been running as a refugee. And now we come to chapter 23 because this is the first incidence where it openly tells us that David... Uh, ask God for direction. Now, we know he did before that as well, but this is the first scene where, where we see it in chapter 23. David is in, um, he hears that the city of Kila, which is a, a town in Judah, is being attacked by the Philistines, who at that time are the dominant military power, continually raiding. They're fighting all the time. The Israelis are fighting the Philistines. And this goes on many more times. And they are being attacked, and David himself hears about it, is bothered because Saul as a king won't go anything, won't go and do anything about it. And he asked God a question. Did you notice this in verse 2? The Lord, he, David asked the Lord, should I go and attack them? Yes, go and save Kila, the Lord told him. But it says that David's men flinch when they hear this. Because they know they're outnumbered. They know the Philistines are a more dominant military power. So they say, hey, are you sure that's what God says? So David asked the second time. He asked the Lord again. And notice what it says. The Lord says, go down to Kila, for I will help you conquer the Philistines. So David and his men went, which is a key. David actually acts on what God asks him to do. He says, go and I'll give it to you. By the way, how many of you would like to know ahead of time that you were going to win? If you were in a contest or you were in a war or you're going to go close a deal, you know, and you're a salesman, and God, am I going to close this thing? How many would think that would be a cool deal? Yeah, that would be very nice to know ahead of time. In fact, had a friend call, I was uh, actually sent him a little text the other day and asked him, he's been working, he's a commercial real estate man, and he's been working on a deal that's over five months old. And it comes close to being done and then blows up and over and over. And he said, yes, I'm on my way to the bank today to finish the deal. And so I sent him a little alleluia back. And but how great to know after all this time too bad that God didn't tell him five months ago this was going to happen or probably would have saved a little bit of stress along the way. But God comes through and now David goes and while he's rescued this city, the city of, uh, of uh, Kila, it says while he's there he gets word that the men of Kila, who he's just rescued are going to turn him over to Saul. 
because they're afraid that Saul will come and do what he's already done to another city of his own people where he slaughtered all of them, men, women, children. He killed all of his own people because it was a city of priests and Ahimelech the priest had rescued David and had sought the Lord for him. And when Saul found out, he came and he killed everybody in the village. And only one person escaped. His name was Abiathar. And Abiathar was also a priest and he came to David for refuge and he brought with him the ephod. And I know this morning you got up and were just wondering, you know, I wonder what an ephod is, right? That's what you were thinking about this morning? How many, anybody? Okay. Well, an ephod was part of the priestly robe, uh, priestly garb that the, ro uh, excuse me, the priest wore. And on it, it had this thing called the, there's still debate as to what it was. Were they little stones? Were they something else? But supposedly they glowed and they would ask God and he would give answers through this thing called the Urim and the Thummim. But modern scholars, we're still not sure it was what it was because we can't see them. We don't know exactly sure. But this priest who escaped, Abiathar, David now goes to, and notice it says he consults him. So when he hears this, he says, he asked the Lord, verse 9, what he should do. And then David prayed, verse 10, O God of Israel, I have heard Saul is planning to come and destroy Kilah because I am here. Will the leaders of Kilah betray me to him? And the Lord said, he will come. Hmm. And then he said, will the leaders of Kilah betray me and my men to Saul? Yes, they will betray you. So David asked the question, and he gets the answer. The very people he despaired would have betrayed him. And so David, at this point, turns to God, and God answers him. But this isn't the first time David has turned to God. As a teenager, we know he did because he was writing hymns and psalms out as he was playing his harp out with the sheep. And then we also know when he was anointed by Samuel, he had Samuel's input for a while. And then he had Jonathan, a man who was Saul's son, but closer than brothers, who loved God and loved him. And then he had Ahimelech the priest and now Abiathar. And David's been surrounded because he has sought people who seek God. That is a powerful principle for your life and mine. Do you seek out people who are connected to God, who are going to help you hear God's voice at the right time? David did that. Could this also be a clue as to one of the reasons he became the greatest king in the history of Israel? Didn't say he was perfect, but certainly the greatest king. And so he asked these questions. And if I were to ask you this morning, when do you ask for directions? Is it when it hits a crisis or is it on a regular basis? Because those who ask God on a regular basis know and hear from God more often. Now, he to begin with is a guiding God. That's the whole point. Is God guides. He leads. It also means he's a protecting God. It also means he's an opportunity seeking God for you and me if we're connected to his opportunities. So how does God do that? Well, in, in, this is 2,700 years ago we're looking at. But today, God has left us with a map. His directions on how to get where we need to go. And every day we are able to consult with him to look at the scriptures and be able to get direction for our lives. And God will never lead us anywhere that contradicts his truth. And so we can know he will be guiding us and directing us as well. So David's life is spared. The Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 12, it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
See, let God direct our minds. He says, then you will be able to prove what is the good and the perfect and the pleasing will of God. Because direction is really simply following God's path, his plan, his will for your life. And that involves not just a geographical place we go. It involves attitudes, priorities, relationships, values, desires. Did I follow him in all those? That's how he guides. That's how he leads. And that's how he wants to direct your life and mine. Now the second situation, second Samuel, turn to chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. And we're going to see David now has been out raiding because that's how he made his living. They had to go in and raid Philistine towns in order to feed all of his men. There were about 600 of them by now and their families. So there were probably 1,500, maybe 2,000 people that David was responsible for. And so they come back to the city where they have refuge, where they've been living. The name of it is Ziklag. In case you haven't been there, uh, it's still named Ziklag. And they get back and they discovered that their families have been kidnapped. The Amalekites had come, and, had come through. You remember them? All the ites in Israel. There was the stalagmites and the stalactites and the termites and the Amalekites. And they had come and they had kidnapped every one. They took the wives and the children. And now it says for the first time David's men are so upset, and you, you can understand this, they talked about killing David. They talked about stoning their leader. Now, folks, leadership is tough. Okay? It's not a cakewalk. And David right now is faced for the first time He's been, already been running for his life for all these years from Saul, and now his own men are talking about taking him out. That's called stress. That's called pressure. But if you look at verse 6 of chapter 30, it says what? David found strength in the Lord. You see, his whole life he's been turning to God. So now he doesn't panic. He doesn't run away. He doesn't flip out. He doesn't do anything stupid. He turns to God because that is his pattern. He's been asking directions. He goes right back to, and he finds strength from the Lord. By the way, what's your first response when you're in trouble, difficulty, pain, or confusion? Where do you turn? See? And then it says David goes to Abiathar again and he goes to God, his refuge, and he says, bring me the ephod. And he says, Lord, should I go after those who've captured our families? And God says what? Go, I will give them to you. By the way, what do you need to ask God about today? Thinking of changing jobs, have you asked him? Do you need help in raising children? Do you need help in a marriage? Do you need help making a purchase? By the way, we should do that anyhow. Not just when there's a crisis. And so God says, go ahead and as they go, they run into this slave who was an Egyptian slave who the Amalekites had captured. And uh, he, they, th they leave him behind for dead. And David says to him and his men, can you lead us to where they are? And he says, yeah, I can lead you under one condition. You don't kill me. You saved my life. And he says, you're protected. And the Bible goes on to say that not only do they catch up, but they rescue all their families. Because God already said you're going to win. Go after them. Again, isn't that wonderful? But it's very interesting because it says, God says, I will give them to you. They had to fight a day and a half with the enemy once they discovered them, even though God had already said they were going to have victory, which tells us something. God can tell you ahead of time, you're going to win and he's going to intervene. doesn't mean there won't be any spiritual battles. There may be enormous spiritual battles, even though he's already won. And what he's telling us to do 
is to go. He'll give it to us, but we may have to fight in a spiritual basis. In fact, along the way, it says they had just come from fighting before they even heard this. They got home. They had been fighting. They had been raiding. And now as they go, out of the 600 men, 200 of them are so exhausted, they can't even fight. And they drop off to stay with the baggage that's there. And the rest of the 400 go and do all the fighting. There's a whole other great story that we don't have time for today that comes out of that. So what we see here is that lives are spared as God predicted. There's restoration. Do you know why? Because the future king of Israel asked for directions in crisis against all odds. Don't kid yourself, folks. David was outnumbered as he was in almost every situation. This is one he could never have done apart from God. And the, and, and the king he would replace did just the opposite. He'd run away from God. He wouldn't wait for God to answer because, by the way, as we said it before, you know, you may ask God for things, and somehow his kingdom, there's always a waiting period, isn't it? And God makes us wait longer than we like to wait, right? Anybody here like sitting at stoplights beside me? That's where I get all my reading done? Sorry, that was a joke. And not a good one. The next scene we see is in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Something has happened. By now, Saul has died. And God had announced to David, you're going to be the king someday. And so in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, in verse 1, David says to God, Lord, should I go back to Judah? Now why? For 13 years he's been out of the land, his own homeland. He's been on the run, hiding from Saul. And on more than one occasion, he was right next to Saul. He could have easily killed him, but he spared him because he said, he's the Lord's anointed. Even though he's trying to kill me, God, you take care of him. I'm not going to do it. Another reason, he's the greatest king in Israel's history. He knew how to let God fight his battles for him. And somehow he was able to trust God for the timing, which was not his own timing. But he says, I want, he says do I go back to the land? Now, why would that even be a question? Saul's gone, but you see, Saul still had followers there in the land. David knew it was still dangerous. Even though this seems like a less dangerous situation, there's still danger involved. And life and David's whole life was all about, he could have gotten killed on thousands of incidences because of war. Here's a king, he goes to war. He was fighting all the time. God had been protecting him. And so God says, yep, you can go back, return to Judah. And he says, okay, Lord, which town? Where should I go? And the Lord says, go to Hebron. Now, uh, if you're from the Midwest, you say Hebron. Because I grew up, my first three years, I went to Hebron grade school. And it doesn't have anything to do with this, but I just thought I'd tell you that. <laughs> so he goes to Hebron. And God is saying to him, go, I'll take care of you wherever you are. Let me ask you this. Can God guide you? You see, where you need to go and when you need to go? The question is, do we ask like David did? And could, again, this be a connection why David became the greatest, most powerful, wisest, even though he had some major failures, king in Israel's history? Because he was always consulting his maker and his sustainer. As this could be why he was given such great victories as a king. Question is, what kind of difference would it make in our lives? And where do we need to look to God, not only to ask him, but for confirmation? Of what we do. You know, one I'm going to mention, just kind of out of the blue, that I've seen over the years, there's one area that even believers, we don't ask and we experience much pain. It's when we get married. 
When you got married, what we usually say is, well, you know, I, I like her, she likes me, and he's so fine, and gee, we're just seem to be meant for each other, even believers. Over the years, I tried to counsel couples, you know what, if you're going to get married, ask God first if he wants it. Well, what do you mean? We love each other? Everybody thinks this is a great idea? Ask God what he thinks. How many think that's a good idea? Probably all of you are married. <laughs> How many of you who are not married think that's a good idea? Well, look at there. Okay. I do too. And you know, it doesn't mean there won't be challenges later on. It just simply says there's one example. What if God were to say no? And so here he is. He's asking God for, correct, for directions to confirm it. And when you and I do that, it's called what? It's called yielding. It's called submitting to a greater will. And what will your story tell at the end of your life? Because did you know this? Your prayer life is part of your life story. And when we get to eternity, we're going to see either we prayed our way and we sought our God all the way through or we did it our own way. So if prayer is part of your journey and your story, you can be sure, guess what? Someone is leading us. Then the final one, my favorite one, is in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. And the reason it's my favorite is David by now has been made king over all of Israel. Between this time and the last time, you see, he became king over Judah when Saul died. But it was seven years later before the northern kingdom asked David to become their king as well. So from the time David is anointed until he's made king over all of Israel is 20 years. Again, he had to wait a little bit, didn't he? From a 17-year-old to he's about 37, somewhere in there, 37 to 40, when he takes over as king of all his Israel. And then he goes and he captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites and makes that his capital, the stronghold of God. And so the first thing that happens when David's king over all of Israel, north and south, is what? He gets congratulatory letters from all the kings around him, saying, hey, good job, pal, right? Now what the scripture tells us, the Philistines here, and they're going to attack him. Because, you see, when Israel was divided, it wasn't a threat. But now that the north and the south are together, they realize that Israel is a threat to their stability and their neighbors next door. So they come and to interrupt David's uh, you know, party for being the new king and, and, and to uh, attack and take them out. And so what does David do in a situation like this? You've probably guessed it. It says, so David asked the Lord, should I go out and fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord replied, yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. So David goes out, he wins the battle, and you would think that uh, there's enough of that. And, uh, and it, again, it's like a few months, a few years later, we're not exactly sure, it says the Philistines come back. They didn't learn the first time. <laughs> and David, once again, he says to God, if you notice in, in verse uh, 23, it says, and again, David asked the Lord what to do. He says, Lord... Uh, what, what should we do? And then God says to him, because David said, hey, do we do it just like we did last time? And the Lord says, do not attack them straight on. The Lord says, instead, circle around behind and attack them near the poplar trees. Then he says this, God says, when you hear a sound like marching feet on the tops of poplar trees, he says, um, be on the alert. He says, that will be your signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did what the Lord commanded and he destroyed him. You know what I love about that? God is saying, maybe you had a great year last year and you won all kinds of victories in your business, in your family. But you know what he's saying? And this is, it hits, it hits me. He says, God may not do it that way this year. 
So a wise leader, a wise David says, okay, God, what do you want me to do this time? He says, I don't want you to do it the way you did it last time. We're going to go fake right. We're going to go around this way. We're going, to, we're going to take him in a different way. And then I'm going to do some interruption like marching feet on tops of trees. That's called supernatural. And he gives them to them. But the key was what? The key was David was pointed toward his God. And so we have this pattern that goes on, on, and on. David asks, God answers. God gives directions. And David not only asks for directions, he follows. You say, well, that's a piece of cake. No, it's not, folks. That's the key to the whole thing. God will direct. He's just looking... Saul, he would have given him the same direction, but he wouldn't follow. He was too busy taking matters into his, his own hands too quickly. It also tells me something else. God wants David to win at life. Does God want you to win at life? Absolutely. That's why he says, ask me. <laughs> and he says, I will guide you. And so, how do we know we're going to win? It all depends. You see, there's a common theme in all four of these. Did you catch it? Every time David asks, there's almost a guarantee God's going to answer. Do you know why? Because it's not all about David. The first time it was for another city. For another time it was for the wives and children of his own men. The third time, if he was coming back to be king, it would be for his people. And for the fourth time, it would be the same thing to protect his people from the Philistines. So every one of these asking, God was going to answer because it was for the benefit of others. Did you catch that? You want more answered prayer? That's the key. It's also got to include the benefit of other people. That's what it means when Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not just about us. God always answers that kind of prayer. Not selfish prayer, but generous prayer. If you take a look at your outline, it says this. Prayer is more than an event or a spiritual exercise. It's a relationship. See, some people say, well, you know, uh, I got to set aside time to pray. Yes, we do. And is prayer a spiritual discipline? Yes, it is. But the heart of prayer, it's a relationship. It's a love relationship. It's a trust relationship with the one who made us. The second thing is this. Prayer is more than getting what we want. It is getting what God wants. That's how you know you're praying. What do you want in this situation? God, I know what I want, but God, what do you want? You see, God wants us to develop a heart for him and a heart like his. And do we want a heart like God? The goal would be that God is our ultimate reward himself. And that prayer is really nothing more than an expression of faith and trust that flows in love for the one who made me, the one who sustains me, and people around me. There's another question then, so why should we ask? Well, let's look at David's life. When David asked, what happened? David asked to take the right road, and it grew a relationship to fulfill his mission. Same with you and me. You see? To take, we asked to take the right path like David, to grow a relationship so we can fulfill our mission. And he fulfilled it. And he fulfilled it well, even with some hiccups along the way. And also because our story is a path, and it's going to have turns and peaks and valleys, and God knows how to get where we need to go, and we really don't. And so to take the right road, we must grow a relationship in a heart. And we can't grow a relationship without intimacy with God, and that's where prayer comes in, because it's all part of the relationship. 
and God has your best in mind, that's why he asks us to pray. You see, he's a gracious God. Does God guide you? Does he guide me? Yes, he does. And he guides his very best. And he wants to tell us over and over. You know, when the apostle John was an old man, this is what legend says, it's not in the scripture, but the story about John is wherever they would take him and they had to carry him, he would walk in and he would give the same message. It's very short. He would say what? Little children love one another. And then he'd sit down and somebody else would speak. They said over, and if you read 1 John, that's what the whole book's about. We know we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. Love one another, on and on and on. You see, John was saying, here's how we dribble the ball here. Here's how we tie our shoes. This series is all about the foundation again. Last week, we brought up, uh, we talked about favor grace again. I can't tell you how many of you expressed just deep appreciation and said, hey, thank you and Thank you for bringing that up, that whole foundation. Some others thought, you know what? Is he getting old like John? Has he only got one message? You know, does he forget what he said before? And I, I, I'm, I want to comfort you that uh, thank you for even uh, sharing that with me. Um, but the point is, we have a tendency to take our own path. Look at the next verse. Read it with me. All of us like sheep, here we go. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now, is that true? Do we all take our own paths? Absolutely. I don't think I have to convince you of that one. In fact, so much so, notice what the prophet Jeremiah said. Look at this next verse. Again, saying what kind of stings, but is also very, very true. And um, where he says this. He says, and you, Israel, have brought this upon yourselves by rebelling against the Lord your God, even though he was leading you on the way. You know what that says? God is guiding us all the time if we follow. <laughs> he says, God was guiding you, and yet, what did you do? He says, you, you, you went the other direction, so you brought it all the pain on your own life. And by the way, I don't know about you folks, but 90% of the pain in my life, I brought on myself. That may not be true for you, but probably for me. And then notice it says, what happens because of that? We, Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me. That's called walking a different path. They abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. <laughs> this idea that it all leaks out. Has anybody uh, ever done that kind of thing as well? We do that without even knowing it. And so... What he's telling us is Jesus comes along and he says, look, I am the way, not a way, not one of the best ways, but I am the way to what? And right in the verse he says, I'm, I am the way to truth. What is truth? I'm the way to real life. I'm the way to our Father because you've been made for him. That's your story. And simply, prayer is simply trust in God for his best for us. The next question we need to ask is this. Why, ask? Because it's so we can activate the Holy Spirit's power and gain strength for life's challenges. Now, folks, prayerlessness always underestimates the power of God. If I'm not praying through my life, I think I can handle it, I can do it on my own, I've just admitted I don't really understand who God is, nor do I understand really my own limitations. And sometimes we have to learn the hard way, don't we? And so it's just the opposite. It says God's come so you can activate his power and gain strength. Because too often we know what to do. Uh, one of the th reasons I, I, 
I've poured by God's grace my life into men over the years is I grew up not having a clue how to be a dad, how to be a husband. I didn't have a model, and I discovered most men really struggled at that level. What do you do? I mean, you know, and, and not having a model. So that forced me to say, God, I need you. I need your help. I need your strength because you can even know what to do, and that doesn't mean we have the power to pull it off. You ever thought of something you need to do? I need to go talk to this person and do that. We don't do it. I need to treat my children this way, and we don't do it, and on and on and on. We need the power to do it. And fortunately, look at what God says. He says, it is not by force or by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord God of, of heaven's armies. What's God asking you to do? Or where do you need strength to do what's hard that you can't do it on your own? Maybe it's to love some difficult people. Or maybe it's to address an old area of failure in your life. Or maybe it's an area where you're stuck. And if we can live without prayer in this area, if we can go to work, if we can do our work, or we can try to raise our family, don't, then folks, I can guarantee you we're headed for pain. Somewhere down the line, if I'm operating out of my own strength, it's just a matter of time, it's coming. And God is gracious to say, trust me, even if you think you're hitting home runs right now, give it to me and let me work. And then the next verse from Romans 8, 14 says what? All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. You know what that's saying? God guides his children. That's who he is. He's a guiding God. He's a directing God. He's going before us. And what's the key to being led by God? Because he's going to lead us to the best place. We're not going to find it on our own. We've already said it. It is a yieldedness, the willingness to follow. It's a submission, the dirty word in the Western world. A submission to God. And it's a daily thing. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. See, because we got all kinds of desires that are opposite of what God has for us. But he says, if you will follow me, I will lead you in the right direction. And then finally, why ask to impact our world, to bless those inside and outside of our circle of influence? You see, Christianity is not all about, our story is not all about us. It's God's story. He wants to write through us. And when we begin to see it from his way, we understand we're here to bless this world. That's part of his story. And prayer is an act of love. Prayer is an act of faith. And so who are you going to pray for real quickly? First of all, you pray for yourself. You say, but I thought you said it's for others. Well, of course it is. But notice this verse. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Would you underline the next part? I never get tired of telling you things. He's saying, here's how we dribble the ball here. <laughs> We start over. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it, why? To safeguard your faith. Because over and over and daily, we need reminders of doing it his way. So what is he saying? When we go to pray, the first thing to do is, is don't pray for yourself. It's to focus on God. You've heard it say, seek his face, not his hand. Hand is what we want. Face is who he is. And begin to praise God. Say, God, whatever I'm going through, and maybe your challenges are big, and maybe your heart is breaking. Say, God, I realize you are the one who loves me the most. Life hurts. Life stinks. But I praise you because you're bigger. And God, I don't have the answers, but I know you begin to praise him for who he is. And then notice the next thing you pray for yourself. Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. What's he saying here? 
He says, first of all, God, search me, know me, because I have blind spots. That's what that prayer is about. Show me what they are. Secondly, God, would you help me with my anxieties? Test me, know my anxious thoughts. Number three, he says, point out anything that offends you. Correct me, O God. By the way, do any of us have anything in our life that offends God? Yes, all of us do. Every day. And so I have to ask him, God, forgive me for offending you. I may not even know what it was today. And then finally, lead me along. Here it is, the path of everlasting life. What is that? That's the path you want to be on. The path that leads to a fulfillment. You're writing the story that has a good ending, that leaves you with significance. That's what that's all about. His path. And it all comes down to his will. But what if you're in a situation you're really having trouble praying? There are times when life gets so difficult, so overwhelming, you have trouble praying. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is praying for you right now. Did you know that? It says in Romans 8, the same chapter, that the Holy Spirit is praying for you with groanings too deep for words. You can't even articulate it, but he will interpret it into what God's best is for your life. And then have someone else in your life that you're asking to pray for you. He also wants us to pray for our family. You know, for years I prayed certain things I wanted my family to do and become, and somehow they didn't cooperate. Anybody else ever experienced that? And then one day I began asking, I noticed, you know, that in, in, in Ephesians, there's this nice little prayer in Ephesians 1. There's another one in Ephesians 3. Colossians chapter 1 opens with a neat prayer. And Philippians chapter 1 opens. Why are they there, God? You ever thought about those? And all of these are what Paul is praying for the people that he's led to Christ. I thought, ah, maybe there's something there. See how brilliant we are? It's always been there. It only took me years to figure that out. So guess what? I started praying, just reading those prayers back to God for my family. And you know what? I began seeing more change than all the prayers I had ever prayed for them. Because those are the things we need most. In Ephesians 1, he says, pray that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. So they can know the hope they've been called to, the riches of his inheritance and saints, the surpassing greatness of his power found in Christ. In Ephesians 3, it says, and so what he's saying, pray for wisdom, pray for spiritual light so they understand who God is. In chapter 3, he says, I, he says, pray that God will strengthen them with power through his spirit in the inner person so Christ can dwell in their heart by faith so they can grasp his love. It's all about pray for spiritual strength for them. In Colossians 1, he says, I pray, again, you'll have spiritual insight so that you might know his will and bear much fruit. It's about being a productive person. And in Philippians chapter 1, he says, pray, I pray that your knowledge and understanding will grow in the knowledge of God. But now those are four dynamic, powerful, explosive things. Just pray those for your family. A couple other quick suggestions. If you do pray for your family, always pray daily for spiritual protection. Moms naturally pray for, pray for physical protection for their children, and that's good. Pray for spiritual protection. Because, folks, we are at war. I don't know if you believe that, but, but we are. The other thing is when you're praying with the family, always start with praise. Praise God for something. Another thing, remember this. When you pray, don't preach at them. Right? Now, Lord, I would really ask you to change my husband today. You know, if he could just get with it, this whole family would be better. How many like being preached at when you're prayed for? I don't think so. So don't do that one, okay? Stay away from that. Same with the kids. But you do this. Bless when you pray for them. Bless them. You know that. And then ask them what they want prayer for and be sure that when you're praying as a family, you pray for somebody else too. Somebody else. Even just one other person. And 
We've talked about this before. If you're going to pray for them over the phone, which is still a wonderful thing, just keep it short. You call your husband and your wife because you're busy and say, hey, let's pray. You pray for a minute. Ask God to bless them. Whatever else is in boom, and you move on. And we could go on in a week from today at our parents' luncheon. They're going to talk about how to pray for your family. So I encourage you to stay after, have lunch, and, and talk about The third thing we want to pray for are believers. Notice what James says. James says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And that's, of course, one of the things we always do in our small groups, don't we? We confess our sins to each other. I am teasing because I know we don't. Sometimes we do if we really know each other. But you know what? Healing comes when we get real with our battles. And as believers, we need to be big enough not to condemn someone else, but to say, let me pray for you. And by the way, how many people are hurting in the world today? Or how many have hurts? How many do you think? All, oh, 100%. Some are greater than others. Some don't even know they have some. You say, hey, I'm having a great time. I'm going to watch a ball game. I'm going to have lunch. This is a great day. What do you mean I've got hurts? Trust me, we all need the work of God to heal within. And who can we call when we're having a difficult time who will pray with us? If not, we're unprotected. And that's why we encourage you, if you'll take uh, you, in your bulletin, if you'll take out the little prayer card, this is the time of year where we, we start bouncing the basketball again. We say, God, hey, we just did this. We're encouraging you to sign up once again to pray five by five. Five minutes a day, five times a week for this church, for what God is going on. The other side of small groups, we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. But would you do that? You can sign up for it, and we'll get the prayer request. And you know what? It just means God's going to answer prayer. And you know, if I could, I would like to ask you for a prayer for uh, Patricia and I. Uh, two weeks from tomorrow, uh, we're going to be doing a conference here at ABF. The church has been gracious to let us be here. And um, uh, we're going to the organization we're with, Global Training Network, uh, and our academy, the Global Academy for Next Generation Leaders. We're going to be bringing in people from eight to ten different states. And we're going to be training them in, in what we do internationally. It's a new approach to training indigenous leaders. And all these people, most of them, I should say, have 15, 30, 25, 30 years as pastors and missionaries. And they're coming to this. So we feel great responsibility and honor to be able to do that. But we would really appreciate for the final week's preparation, for them coming. But most of all, the result would be because when they come, they agree to adopt some country for three years. They're going to take this to the, the, the systems that we teach them and take it overseas. And so it means the expansion of the kingdom of God. We're excited about it. But it also means there's spiritual opposition, folks, and we're experiencing it already. So if you would remember that, we would greatly appreciate it. And then finally, the last thing is who do we pray for? Those who are unreached. And notice what Jesus said. Harvest is great. The workers are few. So pray the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. How many times have we shared that verse here? Many, many, many times. But you see, Jesus is saying, this is my heart. Don't ignore my prayer request. I don't care how many times we hear it. This is the heart of Jesus. It is broken for this world. He came to die for the people we don't even know. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, when's the last time you prayed for another country? When's the last time we prayed for this country? This is my heart. God is bleeding. He laid it out there. The request of Christ is pray for more people to go into the harvest field. Will you do that? And you know what? God will answer it. 
Jesus has gone deep down to bear his soul for you and me. And it gives us a privilege to know that we can make a difference. I'm going to ask you this question, and we're going to hear it in the weeks and months ahead. What if everybody in this church this year prayed about winning one person to Christ this year, just one? What would happen in your life and in mine and in this church? In the future, I'd like to tell you a little bit about that. If every one of us would say, God, use me, and many of you have great relationships right now, the people at work and neighbors and friends and relatives, and if God used each one of us to win one person, I'll tell you what will happen. Our lives will be different. This church will be different. The kingdom of God is going to expand. Final question is this. What do you need to ask God to do? And how will you and I follow directions in 2012? He says, here we go. Will we do it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the model of David. A man who in desperation sought you. It seems like his whole life was one of desperation. And as it turns out, that's a very good thing. Because he is the one who shows us what a heart for God is like. This morning, is, before we close, would you ask God, if this is the desire of your heart, to give you a heart like he has? Would you say, God, would you place on my heart the needs of other people? Oh, I have so many of my own needs, God. So many right now, they're just huge. But I give those to you. And help me, even though while I'm hurting, to reach out to someone else. And Jesus, I want to spread who you are to the world around me. Father, thank you for your people. I thank you for the privilege of being here at ABF for these months. But I also want to thank you for what you are doing here. And I also know what you want to do. And it's a glorious thing. Make us people who seek you and then follow your direction. And now we bring to you these offerings as an expression of love. We offer them to you and pray that they would bear fruit as they're given here in this community and around the world in the lives of our families and children and to people we will impact for you this year. And one final thing, would you pray this? Would you pray, Jesus, use me to win one person to you this year. It scares me to think about it. I don't really know how, but God, I know you're big and I want to go on that adventure. I want my story to be written with you all over it that you led me to those who needed you. Just give that to him right now. We thank you for hearing us in our Savior's strong name. Amen.